0: The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Father, I ask now with great earnestness, and I know that the brothers and sisters are praying with me, even as they see this by camera, that you would come now. You would touch them to give them hearts to embrace and minds to understand the truth and grant me a good measure of your Holy Spirit so that I can be focused on what is true and beautiful and be faithful to scripture for the building up of our faith and the strengthening of our hope and the endurance of our joy in suffering and sorrow, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most natural questions in the world is to ask how joy and sorrow relate to each other? Or how does happiness relate to pain and weeping? And the reason I say it's natural is because all of us experience both of them, right? Sad, painful, disappointing, frustrating, damaging things come into our lives, more or less regularly. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're little, but no human being escapes this experience. Not for very long. Something will happen that discourages or damages, hurts, frustrates, causes us to be overwhelmed with sorrow. So that's natural. And you know it's just as natural, just as true, that we all experience tastes of tremendous joy, tremendous pleasure in life. Some people experience pain as dominant and some people experience pleasure as dominant, but nobody escapes the combination. And so it's a natural question. It begs to be answered. What's the relationship for a Christian especially. And it isn't just that I feel this because my experiences of sorrow and joy go in and out of each other hourly, but around me in these recent days it seems like the question has been raised by others to me and beyond me. Let me give you a couple examples. I I just finished reading a new book by my son, Barnabas. It was just, just published a few days ago as we were recording here in October. And it's called Hoping for Happiness. That's the name of the book. And so I wondered, hmm, is he going to deal with this? And there it was, chapter 7 is called Living in Times of Trouble. And I wondered, how will he handle this? And let me give you the key quote from page 84. Quote, The Bible reframes happiness for us by making it more complex. We tend to think of being happy or sad. But scripture depicts a sort of happiness in the midst of sadness. In this life, we will have trouble." but in this life we will have happiness. And this doesn't mean being on an emotional yo-yo, though it sometimes feels that way, but rather experiencing two things at once. One being the damage caused by sin and the other being the happiness given by God." End quote. So Barnabas says that the peculiar, special thing about Christian experience is this simultaneous nature of happiness of a sort and sorrow. Here's another example. Just, what, uh, five days ago or so, I spent all day recording five. Uh, episodes for our podcast called Ask Pastor John, which we put out three times a week. And the first question that Tony pitched me goes like this. this. is I just recorded an answer to this last week. Pastor John, in Psalm 30, verse 5, the psalmist says that joy is found on the other side of suffering. Weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. But Paul's testimony in the New Testament is that he found joy together with his suffering. He said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, talking about being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So, Pastor John, does joy follow suffering? Or is there joy inside of suffering? And did something change in the new covenant? In other words, the fellow who wrote this question for us wonders whether Christians have a new kind of experience because of the cross that the psalmist couldn't have before the cross. I don't think that's the right answer, but it is a very good question. So, here we are in this message, and I would call the message, uh, Joy in Sorrow, that's the title I would give this message. But what we have to do now, in view of what both of those questions have set for us, and in view of our own experience, is look at two groups of passages, two groups of scriptures, right? So first, here's the plan. The first we're going to walk through a series of biblical passages that emphasize the sequential nature of first sorrow, then joy. And then we're going to look at a second group of passages that stress the simultaneous nature of sorrow and joy at the same time, the very same heart experiencing both sorrow and joy at the same time. And then we're going to step back and ask, how can that be? What, What is that experience like? Are there some definitions of joy and sorrow that need to be altered in order to make that work. That's where we're going. We'll close with three observations that I think make this enormously practical in the living of our lives. And before I get into the two groups of texts, I hope what you see in the method that I just sketched, one group saying one thing, second group saying something that seems different, contradictory even to some people, drawing out implications. I hope you see in that a method of doing theology and a method of preaching and caring for a congregation that is very, very important. I want to draw out the method for just a moment before we jump into it. I think One of the reasons people go off the rails and make theological and biblical mistakes is because we are all prone to pick a group of passages that say what we love and focus entirely on that and neglect another group of passages that seem to say another thing. And they're troubling and so we don't look at them very much. And what I'm stressing is this, what I have found over the decades is that we sell ourselves short. We don't get as much biblical wisdom and insight When we do that, as we do if we say, okay, I'm gonna be honest with this group of passages that say one thing, and this group of passages that seem to say something that doesn't fit with that, and I'm not gonna let those go because they're both in the Bible, they're both true. God does not contradict himself, and I'm gonna push down into the reality until I see the common root. And that's where theology gets really rich. Rich for our minds, but especially rich for our souls and our life. I mean, imagine a church where a pastor constantly says, you will have seasons of sorrow but afterwards comes joy. It always comes and he never says anything about joy in sorrow. Or picture a church where the pastor's always saying you can and should have joy in your sorrow and never says anything about the sequence of sorrow being followed by joy. In my judgment, Both of those churches are going to be immature. They're going to be weak. They're going to be vulnerable to temptations that if the pastor was rich with all of scripture and was thinking with his people down into the common roots of those two apparently contradictory things, that church would become mature and strong and stable in this world. So you can see this is a method that in my own thinking and in my own preaching, I want to model for other people. Now let's go to the the text because that's where the riches are found. So group number one, passages of scripture that emphasize or focus on sequence. Sorrow, then joy. Psalm 30. So I've got got two from the Psalms, one from Jesus, one from Paul, and one from John. First the Psalms. Psalm 30, verse 5. God's anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. Joy comes in the morning. So, In some sense, the joy that comes in the morning wasn't there in the evening. And the weeping that was there in the evening goes away in the morning. That's a real sequence. That's a real experience. Second, Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So the picture is of a farmer. And he is sowing his seed, and his heart is broken. And he's weeping as he sows his seed in the ground. And then it says, at the harvest, there are shouts of joy. That's a real sequence. First the sorrow, and then, in his case, months later, shouts of joy. Number three, this is from Jesus. John 16, 20, Jesus is describing to his disciples what they are going to emotionally experience with his death and resurrection. Here's what he says, John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he gives an example. When a woman is giving birth, She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. So the disciples clearly walked through hours in which they sorrowed. And those hours were followed by rejoicing. And Jesus compares it to a woman in Childbirth who has labor pains and and the cries of birthing gives way to the baby in arms and the overwhelming joy. Sequence, real sequence. Romans 12, 15, simple command. We all know it. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, just because Paul says in another place, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, Philippians 4, don't plan your funerals as though they were festive weddings. And just because Ecclesiastes 7 says, Verse 2 says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Don't throw a blanket of gloom upon the happiness of the bride by treating her wedding like a funeral. Because Ecclesiastes also says, for everything there is a season. A time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance." Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 3. One more text. This one comes from the gospel, I mean, the, uh, the Apostle John, the revelation of John, and you could call it cosmic sequence or historical sequence goes like this and you know it Revelation 21 3 I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away Every tear from their eyes, death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, the former things <coughs> have passed away. So there's a sense in which we can say this present fallen age in which we live our lives is an age of tears, it's an age of mourning, it's an age of crying, it's an age of pain, and then Jesus comes at the end of that age and the former things pass away. That's a kind of cosmic sequencing of sorrow and joy. So that's the first group of texts. Namely the ones that focus on the sequence. Sorrow, joy, sorrow, joy in sequence, not simultaneous. Now here's group number two. Focusing on the simultaneous experience of joy in weeping, joy in pain, joy in sorrow. And if you're like me, just to to head it off at the pass, some of you are getting impatient with me that I haven't defined joy, haven't defined happiness, haven't defined sorrow. And, And you know... Probably if you paused, Piper, and gave us some really crisp, clear, nuanced definitions, all the problems would go away. Well, that's where we end up. (laughs) And the reason I'm not doing that, even though it's frustrating for you and me, the reason is this. Trying to define biblical words like joy or blessedness or happiness or sorrow or pain or crying ahead of the tension, we're going to get it wrong. It's precisely putting these texts together and letting them knock heads with each other that keep us from being naive in our definitions. Okay, that's my justification for frustrating you that I'm not giving you the definitions you want. I hope we get there. So here's here's group number two. Let's start with the one we've already seen, Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Now, he did not have to say always. Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. <clears throat> and what makes that even more striking is that immediately before that verse, in verses one to three of chapter four, he was dealing with the painful conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, who he wished could agree in the Lord. And into that, painful conflict, he says, always be rejoicing, you odia, always be rejoicing, Syntyche, and my yoke fellow who's going to work with these women to get it all worked out and has to go to bed at night with the weight on your shoulders, always be rejoicing. And here's what makes it even more remarkable, just a few verses, I think five verses before that, chapter 3, verse 18, he says this, many of whom, he's talking about the adversaries, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He had just said in verse 17, imitate me, be imitators of me, your apostle. And the first thing he gives them to imitate is weeping over lost people, not joy. Or rejoice always as if not, if you think I misspoke, Paul says, I'll say it again. And again, I say, Rejoice. Paul is not a careless writer. He's not a bad communicator. He doesn't make mistakes under God's inspiration about the interpretation of his own experience. Even while tears are flowing, in verse 18 of chapter 3, verse 4 of chapter 4 is true. The enemies of the cross are opposing him. And he's weeping as he makes this observation about them to the church. And verse 4 is true. Rejoice always. I mean, think about it. Can these enemies of the cross blackmail Paul? emotionally you know what I mean when I say emotional blackmail let me explain they cannot manipulate him by demanding the ruin of his joy because of their unbelief Paul won't let them do that and you shouldn't let people blackmail you emotionally how could he weep Over their not rejoicing in Christ. Listen carefully. How could he weep over their not rejoicing in Christ if he ceased? to rejoice in the one he wants them to rejoice in. He would die for their joy in Christ. Will he then stop rejoicing in Christ when he's willing to lay down his life that they would join him in rejoicing in Christ and stop being enemies of the cross? No, no, he won't let them get away with that. He loves them too much and he loves Christ too much. And lest we think, perhaps reading our own experience into Paul, lest we think that this tearfulness over lost people, perishing people, enemies of the cross, is an intermittent experience for Paul, Listen to Romans 9, 2 through 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Did you catch that phrase? That's a good translation. There's no exaggeration here. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. In my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So the issue in verses 2 and 3 of Romans 9 is they're lost. Paul would switch places with them and be cut off from Christ if it were possible that they might be saved. That's how much he loves them. And he prays that they would be saved over in chapter 10, verse 1. But the phrase that's mind-boggling here emotionally is, this is unceasing for Paul. He goes to bed every night with this weight on his chest, as some of you do. For your kids, and for your parents, and your brothers, and your sisters, and your churches. And yet, the man who said, I experience unceasing anguish, wrote, rejoice always, always, and again I say rejoice. He's not careless with his words. He's not Uh, a poor grasper of his own emotional reality. He knows what he's saying and he means what he's saying. Consider just two more passages on the simultaneous nature of joy in suffering, in sorrow. Romans 5, 3. We rejoice, or we exult, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love is poured out into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, that is the most extended explanation of how it can be that joy happens unshakably in suffering. It goes like this Suffering produces the endurance of faith. And when faith survives that crisis of suffering and flourishes in it, it reveals character, the character that God approves of. And that steadfast sense of approvedness, I'm real, I'm real. My faith did not fail in that season of suffering, I'm real. That sense of approvedness gives rise to hope And then he says this amazing statement. I think when I preached through Romans, I preached six sermons on this verse. (laughs) I mean, even getting ready for this talk, I'm blown away again by verse five. The reason the hope, your hope in suffering, does not put you to shame or give out, is because the love of God, that is, your being loved by God is poured by the Holy Spirit into your heart. That's a miracle. Do you know what that tastes like? To have the Holy Spirit pouring through the gospel a sense I'm loved by the creator of the universe, And you know your hope is not going to fail. That's what he says. So that's the longest, most detailed, richest, deepest justification for joy in sorrow in the whole Bible. Remarkable. And I have to pause again to say how amazing it is that Paul believes that truths I'm thinking what's written on paper between verses 3 and 5 of Romans 5. Paul believes that truths and the argumentation created by the sequencing of truths actually does the miracle by the Spirit of giving you a heart of hope in the midst of suffering. And I say this just because there are so many people. I've stood in this room right here for over, what, built in 1991. You do the math. I have stood here for decades preaching and had people say You talk like words can have deep, powerful, emotional, transforming effect. They don't. How many people would prefer a pill or some psychological strategy to sustain joy in suffering than words? Just words, just argument, just divinely given logic. If you believe that, namely, that Paul's argumentation for how we can be given the miracle of joy in suffering can't happen through words, you should rip Romans out of your Bible. And while you're at it, rip the rest of the New Testament out of your Bible. Words, 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 words don't. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I wouldn't be wasting my time right now if I didn't believe that. Pastors, be encouraged. The fact that some people don't have ears to hear doesn't make you an unfaithful minister of the word. One more text, the one that's most familiar to us around here, namely the one that sums it up in such a quick and short phrase, 2 Corinthians 6.10, we are treated as sorrowful Yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich. And that phrase, sorrowful yet always, shows that we haven't done anything amiss by putting verses together here in this second group. Sorrowful yet always, sorrowful yet always. So he's the one who puts them together. Piper doesn't just put them together, stretching from Philippians 4 4 back up into. Philippians 3:18 Paul puts them together in one phrase sorrowful yet always rejoicing so we've seen two groups two groups of scriptures one focusing on the fact that rejoicing really follows sorrow it really does and a group of texts that says rejoicing is maintained in sorrow. It really is. They're both there. This is what makes pastors into rich lovers of their people if they will devote the effort and prayer and study and thought to going down into the common reality that makes these possible. So let me try to close that way. I'm going to draw out three observations from what we've seen, which I think uh, make sense of what we've seen and which help us live this life. Number one, first observation. One of the reasons there can be joy and sorrow simultaneously is that The reasons for the one and the reasons for the other are different. And they're both true. Both sets of reasons for why there should be sorrow and why there should be joy are true. They're not contradictory. They're both true. And therefore, the experiencing of both of them simultaneously is possible, indeed, essential. And the best way to illustrate this is to give you the story of, just in a, in, a, in a minute, of how I experienced my mother's death. I was 28 years old, and my mother and my father were leading a tour in Israel. I was married, had a, a two-year-old, and the phone rang with one of those calls you'd you want never to get. Hey Johnny, this is Bob, brother-in-law. I've got bad news. Your mom and dad were in a bus accident hours ago, and your mother didn't make it. Your dad is seriously injured and we don't know if he's gonna make it. I don't know anything else. I'm so sorry, I'll keep you posted. So I give those facts to my wife. I take Carsten's hand off my pants leg where he's saying, daddy's sad. And I go back and I kneel down at the bed and I cry. I mean, I cry like I had never cried and have never cried since for a very long time. And while I was weeping, I did not plan this. There erupted from my memory and from my heart, explosive joy. Father, thank you. She was a spectacularly good mom. Father, thank you. You gave her to me for 28 years. Father, thank you. In recent years that we had a clearing of the air from all my teenage feisty disrespect and ingratitude and things were good between us. Father, thank you that evidently she didn't have to suffer long at all. Father, thank you. Thank you that she is happier right now in the presence of Jesus than I am sad at her loss. And Father, thank you that my dad's still alive. Please, please, please save him. There is no doubt in my mind that that was real joy and real heaving sorrow. None. Nobody could persuade me that this is not possible. To have joy of the profoundest, richest, sweetest kind under the waves of sorrow. That's the first observation. The reasons for the two experiences aren't the same they're not contradictory they're different they both support real experiences and those experiences are possible at the same time. Here's the second observation according to Revelation 21 which we read earlier tears are correlated with death and loss and crying is correlated with pain let me read it to you. He will wipe away every tear. Hear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So pain and loss of death, in death. Pain and loss hurt. They just hurt. You can't stop them from hurting any more than if you smash your finger with a hammer. They hurt. That's what pain is. Pain is what brings up sorrow. Pain brings up crying. Christian joy doesn't mean you don't feel pain. And when we feel it, when tears come, that's real. We don't decide for them to come. They just come. We don't decide to say, ouch. You just say it. It hurt. They come. And the Bible speaks about that pain and our joy in two ways. When the psalmist, now here I'm getting it, the adjustment of meaning of words that makes sense. Listen carefully. When the psalmist says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning, he means tearful joy in God will be replaced by tearless joy in God tearful, weeping joy in God will be replaced by tearless joy in God. Painful joy in God will be replaced by painless joy in God. The tears will be wiped away. The pain will be healed. You can't stop pain and tears from coming, but you can keep joy from going. Because the pain and the joy are grounded in different realities. Final observation. It's a picture. i want to close with this picture that I've, I find that having pictures in my mind, like word pictures, helps me. Picture joy as a granite, a great, I mean very big, maybe as big as this room, (laughs) A, a big granite boulder on the rugged sea coast of your life. It's solid because it's built out of the sovereignty of God The forgiveness of sins and the preciousness of Jesus. God is in charge of your life down to the details. In Jesus there is now no condemnation and Jesus is the all-satisfying treasure of my life. That's the boulder that makes it big and strong and unshakable. In the calm seas, the boulder is exposed to the sunlight and it shines. It shines with glistening silvery laughter. Right? You can picture that. This massive boulder shimmering with laughter in the sunlight as the calm sea spreads around. And then the storm comes and the waves rise and they crash over this boulder and they submerge it out of sight. And the bright shimmering laughter disappears under the surface of tears and the surging waves of weeping and sobbing. But nothing, nothing can dislodge this boulder of joy in all that God is for us in Jesus. It cannot be broken in pieces. It cannot be sucked out into the sea. And when the waves recede, joy comes in the morning. As they did recede, I'm looking at me. I'm not crying much over my mom. When they recede, the boulder shimmers again in the sunlight with laughter. Tearful joy, tearful joy, wave joy covering joy gives way to tearless joy. So I urge you embrace. All the scriptures. Love all the scriptures about joy and sorrow. Grow your families, grow your churches into mature, strong, stable Christians who know from experience and know from scripture that weeping lasts for the night but joy comes in the morning. And also know that the night of weeping is a night of unshakable joy. Let's pray. Lord, all over the world, the experience is common that we have bright sunny days and we have stormy days, we have sorrow and we have pleasure, but only in Christ is there a boulder like this created. Your sovereignty, your Son's saving work, and His precious friendship satisfying our souls is a boulder, nothing can break in pieces, nothing can suck it out into the sea, but oh, how it can be covered with tears until the day comes when we bring our sheaves back with shouts of joy. Go deep with my friends. Go deep with these folks, I pray, and take them down into the glorious strength of all that you are for them in Jesus that can never, never be shaken. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.